This podcast is made possible because of generous supporters. If you would like to help this ministry continue to make this podcast, you can sign up to become a Patreon supporter. You would have options to unlock bonus interviews, be a part of exclusive live stream events, even be a part of an LTN book club. It's really easy to join. Just go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood. We'd love to have you with us as we explore discipleship and missions in our modern times. Again, go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood and sign up today. So in the mid 1200s, there was this problem happening. For the first time in history, Christians were coming up against scientific rationalism and philosophy. Okay, in what way? Okay, so the battle would go something like this. A Christian would see a flower and they would say, that flower exists because God made it. Uh huh. Answers were simple, easy, they allowed for mystery. A philosopher would see that same flower and say, that flower exists because water and sunlight and a process called photosynthesis makes it grow. Answers were with science and logic. And so it was like the sense of who gets the credit in this situation. Right. And these two camps, they were not getting along at all. But into this battle steps a guy named Thomas Aquinas. Oh, okay, Yeah. Thomas, he was an Italian priest and a theologian, but he was also a philosopher. And he thought that this battle between God and logic, between supernatural and natural, that it was unnecessary mm-hmm. and that the two could actually work together. Okay, so like what was his approach? Like what was his process? Okay, so to prove his point, Thomas decided to use logic and reasoning to prove the existence of a supernatural God. Ah, okay. He developed essentially five different proofs or ways, as they're sometimes called, that prove God exists. Ah, okay. What are they? So we're not going to go into all five because that would turn this episode into a philosophy class. Uh We're not going to do that. (laughs) But I'll give you an example. So his first proof is the proof of motion. So he took the Greek philosopher Aristotle's view of things being in constant motion And he argued that there has to be a source behind the motion, like the first domino that tips over all the other dominoes. Oh, like there's got to be something at the origin of all motion. Right. Some initial trigger. Yes. And Thomas was arguing that that source or that initial domino is God. Hmm. So that's just one of his proofs. But he made four other similar arguments, combining laws of nature and logic with theology in order to try to prove that there is a God. Man, I cannot imagine that that went over very well with either camp. Like, I'm imagining, like, the church would have been upset, and I'm imagining that, like, the philosophers of the day would have been upset. Like, how did people respond to this? Yeah, so the response was kind of a mixed bag. And actually, within the church, Thomas's ideas were not received well at all. You are correct. Three years after his death, much of his work and his teaching was condemned by the high church's theological jury. Yeah, I saw heresy coming down the line on that one. Exactly, yes. But here's what's interesting, is that later, the church actually changed its tune. 50 years after his death, Thomas was actually canonized as a saint Mm. and called a defender of orthodoxy. Mm. And his philosophy was adopted in 1917 as the official philosophy of the Roman Catholic Church. 
Wow. It's fascinating, like, in the moment that he first delivers the idea, like, the pitchforks and fire come out, and he's, like, condemned as some level of heretic. And then, like, time catches up, and people are like, oh, wait, never mind. Never mind, he was actually brilliant. Yeah, and here's what's also fascinating. So this happened almost 800 years ago, but this is still, like, an issue that we see going on today. People are still wrestling with this stuff. Issues of faith versus science versus logic, issues of... How can we know God is real? Issues of is there a way to prove, you know, scientifically, factually, historically that God exists? Right. Yeah. So that's what we're going to explore today. Modern stories of people trying to figure out if there's a way to prove the existence of God. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. Today's episode, Proving God. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. Okay, so Jesse, you and I have each brought a story that we're going to share for this episode. But before we do that, I think we need to make a caveat that this episode is not going to be a philosophy class and we're not going to dive too deep into academia um, on this topic. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like proving the existence of God through science or reason or logic. It's something that folks with PhDs debate over. That's not us. No. <laughs> uh, and we just aren't going to even pretend to be qualified to join that kind of debate. Right. So if you, the listener, were hoping for like, here's a three point argument about why God exists. Sorry, you're not going to find that here. Instead, we're simply going to do what we do best. And that is tell stories. Yep. Okay. So we have two different stories following people who went on a journey to find out if there is proof for God. And I think as the senior producer, you should go first. So thank you, Jesse. What is your story? Okay. So our first story actually comes from a guy named Francis Collins. Francis is now a world-renowned scientist and a geneticist. Wow. But at the time that the story starts, he was just an average 23-year-old. He was a med school student and he was an atheist. Here's Francis in an interview with the Language of God podcast. I went to medical school as an atheist and avoided discussions about faith and avoided medical school colleagues who were believers who wanted to talk to me about their faith. Francis said that he made it a point to avoid sitting next to any Christians in the cafeteria at lunch because they would inevitably try to talk to him about their faith. And Francis just was not interested because he believed in something that he calls metaphysical naturalism. What is that? Yeah, so that's actually a fancy way of basically saying that nothing matters except what you can measure through science. That the natural world is all there is and there is no God. So things like miracles and faith, they're just superstitions from a less enlightened era. And we need to rid ourselves of those things in order to move society forward. Okay, so basically the material world, that's it. Yeah, and because that was what he believed, He saw Christians as kind of weirdos. I had no grounding uh, in religion other than having been sent to church to learn music, uh, which I learned, but I didn't learn the rest of it at all. Thought it was a lot of hocus pocus. But then this thing happened. 
Francis's beliefs actually got shaken up when he moved into his third year as a med student, because that was when he started getting more hands-on experience, actually going into hospitals and working with patients. And one of the things that he found himself doing was having to sit at the bedsides of people who were extremely ill and had illnesses that, frankly, had no cure, no doctors could really do anything for them. He found himself sitting with people who were dying. I got quite affected by that and watched these people facing the end of their lives and wondered what I would do. Yeah, I think that's something that we all wrestle with. Like, how would I face death? Yeah, and for Francis, like, he believed that death comes and that's it. Like, your brain shuts down, your heart shuts down. That's the end of who you are. There's nothing beyond that doorway. If the physical is all that there is, there is no afterlife. But some of the patients that he spent time with, they were facing death with a very different attitude than that. One of those patients was an elderly woman. And a particular patient that I was assigned to was a grandmotherly, uh, lovely woman from rural North Carolina. Had terrible advanced cardiac disease and daily episodes of crushing chest pain, which none of our medicines were helping much. And at the end of one of those uh, pains where she was finally coming out of it and she was talking about how her faith saw her through and she knew her life was not going to last much longer, um, but Jesus was there with her. I listened somewhat awkwardly and she stopped and she said, you know, doctor, I've told you about my faith and you never say anything. What do you believe, doctor? Nobody would ever asked me that in such an open, honest, wonderfully caring way. And I stammered something like, well, I don't think I really know, whereupon her eyes widened like, really? And I got out of the room as fast as I could. So this question actually caught Francis off guard. And here's why, because it made him realize that he was an atheist simply out of convenience, not out of conviction. Wait, what do you mean? Well, he believed in the material world because that's what he worked with all day. He worked with things that he could touch and things that he could measure and things that he could see. And so that was the world he understood. That was the worldview he had. And so he was drawing all these bigger conclusions in life only out of his experience. And it was not because he had done research and come to some informed conclusion. He was living out of simply what he'd experienced. And that really tormented me for the next few days. Like, I'm supposed to be a scientist. I'm supposed to care about answering important questions. She just asked me a really important question that I realized I have absolutely nothing to go on in terms of how to answer it. I would identify myself as an atheist, but it was because that was the answer I wanted, not because it was something that actually explored. In short, he basically realized that he was being a bad scientist. He was making assumptions without evidence to back it up. Yeah, because what do scientists do? They have a hypothesis and then they measure it and they say, yes, that's true or no, it's not. Exactly. And so Francis decided that he needed to do something about this. Maybe it's time to explore it. I thought I would undertake a search. 
Okay, so basically, Francis decided to take a scientific approach to his beliefs. He would do research, collect data, and then he would come to a conclusion. So straight up science stuff. He was pretty sure that the conclusion was going to be in favor of his atheism anyway, but he decided to start off his research by talking to some Christians. And it just so happened there was a Christian actually within Francis's own neighborhood. So at this point, I lived uh, on Old Hillsboro Road in Carborough, North Carolina. And down the street uh, was the Carborough United Methodist Church. And the pastor uh, lived in a house a couple doors away from that. His wife had actually visited this Methodist church a couple of times. He says she was a lot more open to religion than he was. So he asked her what she thought of the pastor, and she said, well, he seems like a pretty approachable guy. So in an effort to try to find out why believers actually believe, I went and knocked on his door. The minister's name was Sam. And when Sam answered the door, Francis wasted no time. He just got right to the point. Hey, Sam, um, I'm the guy who lives up the street here, and I'm a intern in medicine, and I'm interested in learning something about why believers believe, because I've observed that people seem to actually take this stuff seriously. Um, I don't have any background in that sort of thing. Maybe you could explain to me, how could a rational person uh, actually sign up uh, to some of these ideas about God without completely checking their brain at the door? How's that for an introduction? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Hi, you don't know me, but let's talk about why you believe what you believe. (laughs) Because I think it's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they actually ended up talking for over an hour. And uh, Sam actually reassured him that many people have asked the same questions that Francis was asking. And that having faith didn't mean chucking your intellect out the window. And at the end of their conversation, Sam had a suggestion for Francis. Then he said, well, let me challenge you uh, to read a book that I have here on my shelf. It's not a very long book, uh, but it's written by somebody who asked the same questions you did and found a path forward, and you can decide whether it fits you or not. And he took this little book down, and of course, this was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So, sidebar... For those of you who are not familiar with Mere Christianity, it's a book by C.S. Lewis that is sort of his case for the Christian faith, where he talks about the meaning of the universe, the nature of human law, and breaks down core tenets of what Christians actually believe. And Lewis himself was an atheist before learning about Christianity and becoming convinced by all the evidence that he saw for it, which is probably what made this minister think that it might be a good book for Francis to read. Yeah, that makes sense. And in that very first chapter, uh, all of my objections began to fall to pieces. That first chapter about the moral law. So moral law, basically this idea that morality is baked into us as human beings. Where did this idea of morality come from, right and wrong? And that my own position on this was really that of a child, not of somebody who had thought the issues through at all. 
Francis was finding that his arguments for believing that the material world was all that there was were just too basic. They weren't well thought out. Like I said before, his atheism came out of convenience, not really out of conviction. And again, as a scientist at his core, convenience just wasn't gonna be good enough. He wanted solid evidence. And right now, the evidence looked like it was leaning heavily in favor of there actually being a God. But Francis was not about to be convinced by just one book. It probably took me several weeks to get through to the end of the book, at which point I realized I had a serious problem maintaining my previous perspective, but I was a long way from buying into it. This was gonna take a journey. So Francis continued his experiment. He developed a relationship with Sam, the minister who had given him the book, and even started attending Sam's church. He just felt like he needed to observe more people who claimed to believe in God. Okay. And so I began to visit his church and listen to his views from the pulpit about what God is all about and this idea that God is not a harsh judge that's out to catch you. Uh, but that God is about love. Sam's favorite verse, uh, John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The words of Jesus, really, really? Wow, that's not the way I'd heard Christianity described. Francis actually continued his investigation for two years. And during that time, he observed Christianity, but he also ended up observing other religions like Islam and Hinduism. He just really felt like he needed to do all of the work and look at all the evidence before he could truly make a conclusion. But here's the thing. The more that he studied, the more that he kept finding evidence that there might be a possibility that there could be a God of some kind hmm. behind everything. Well, like what kind of evidence? So things like this. The fact that there is something instead of nothing. The fact that the universe is so intricately put together. The fact that those intricacies are combined in such a way as to make life possible. The fact that we're even here and the odds of that happening are so astronomically against us unless something is behind it. The fact that things like second order differential equations existed in nature, so there must be a master mathematician behind it all. Okay, so he's starting to come to the conclusion that there is a God. I would say that he's really, really open to that idea and that there's now these really compelling logical concepts on the table that are pointing him in that direction. So when he looks at all of this different evidence, it actually now presents him with a new problem. The more that Francis learned about God or a divine power or whatever force was behind the universe, the more that he was actually also learning about his own shortcomings. So if this God was real and this God was the creator of right and wrong, of calling this created universe to some kind of order, then where does that leave Francis and his own brokenness? So Francis was suddenly feeling like really exposed and that left him with a couple of questions where he started off initially with just like one question, is there a God? Right. Well, now he's got to add a second question in there. If there is a God, what is that God's relationship with us? 
Hmm. Does that God care about us? And for that second question, Francis actually ended up visiting some of his med school professors who he knew were believers. And one of them told Francis about this radical concept. A particular professor uh, of medicine uh, talked to me about his own recognition of the concept of grace. And that was really a moment of realization, both about what grace is and how badly all of us, including me, are in need of it. And for Francis, this grace seemed to be the missing piece of his puzzle. And that maybe was the moment where the Christian view of who God is began to make special sense. Because I was wrestling all through this time with, well, what about all those other world religions? And I should probably avoid becoming a Christian because it's the obvious answer for somebody who's growing up in the United States of America. So let me try to be something else. And I saw those world religions having an awful lot of similarities, but also this profound difference, the person of Jesus Christ and the meaning of the resurrection, which grace all kind of connected with, helping me see, yes, I am so far short of what I should be. And if God is holy, how could God possibly accept me? Oh, because of Jesus. And after two years of searching, on a hike, on a summer morning, in the dewy grass of the Cascade Mountains, Francis fell on his knees. And he said to God, I get it, and I'm yours. I want to be your follower. But hold on. So he started this whole journey with this scientific approach of I'm going to collect the data, I'm going to do the research, and I'm going to come to a conclusion. But is that what ultimately happened? It feels like there was more to it than that. Well, the answer is yes and no. You know, in the end, it wasn't reason or science alone that convinced Francis. Those things definitely played a huge role. But it was also just the nature of God, his grace, his forgiveness, his love displayed through people and especially through Jesus. Francis was just compelled by this beauty that he saw and that he wanted to be a part of it. Francis has also said that he doesn't really know anybody who has become convinced of Christianity through just reason alone at some level there always just has to be a leap of faith. It takes a work of God. Today, Francis, the atheist-turned-Christian, is one of the world's leading scientists and geneticists. He spearheaded the project that first mapped out the entire human genome. The man is a genius. He's also founded an organization called BioLogos, whose mission is to show how faith and science actually work hand in hand. To learn more about Francis Collins, you can check out his book, where he tells more of his story. It's called The Language of God. Coming up, a Christian gets questioned about his faith and goes on a search to find the ultimate argument for God. We'll be right back. Hey, LTN listeners, it's Anna, the media editor. 
Recently, we asked some of our alumni how serving with Love Thy Neighborhood has impacted them. This is Hank Womble from Birmingham, Alabama. Hank served with us for a summer, and during his term with Love Thy Neighborhood, he not only gained hands-on professional work experience, he also learned this about relational community. Community building happens one person at a time, and I'm thankful because I am wanting to help Birmingham grow and help them develop into the community that I know it can be. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, you'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. It's the Love That Neighborhood podcast, Jesse Eubanks. Rachel Zabo. Today's episode, Proving God. So we're hearing two stories of people trying to prove God, and we've just heard from Francis Collins. Rach, what's our second story? Our second story comes from a guy named Nathan Schneider. And for Nathan, when he was growing up, the existence of God and religion, it was kind of a hodgepodge. I grew up in an inter-religious family. It was always interesting. Um, my father's side is Jewish. Um, my mother's side was kind of Midwestern Protestant. But um, my mother, when I was a kid, became deeply connected to Indian traditions. And so I grew up with that mix of uh, several ancient traditions. So in Nathan's household, there was never really talk about God. So Nathan really didn't give the idea of God much thought. In many respects, God was just not a presence. God was not something that we argued about or discussed because, you know, my my father's Judaism was a pretty agnostic Judaism. Then for my mother, you know, God might be a concept, but there are other concepts. You know, God had such a different meaning from what a Christian might at least a different language from what a Christian might use. So that's like a lot of different ideas all around him at one time. Right. And Nathan, you know, growing up, he was kind of like, eh, take it or leave it. He didn't really consider it too much. But then he turned 18 and he started asking all those existential questions that we all do. Things like, who am I? What's my place in the world? And what do I believe? You know, leaving home for the first time and and kind of emotional uh, disturbances and so forth. You know, I, I felt was in a time of a kind of deep urgency of what am I, who am I, and what is my relationship to the universe? So in order to find some answers to those questions, Nathan decided to find some help at a local monastery. And in fact, it was actually his mom's suggestion that he'd go check it out monks who live a very simple life doing simple work like making fruitcakes and farming in some cases and just pray through most of the day. So Nathan visited this monastery and essentially begged the monks to let him learn from them. So like the 18-year-old goes up to some monks and is like, can I hang out with you? Pretty much, yeah. I ended up persuading the monks uh, to let me stay on an extended retreat. Um, And they were very generous with me, ultimately, and let me stay for two weeks. 
not only in the retreat house, but actually in the same hallway um, and to live among them and really share their life, which was uh, just an incredibly unique experience and something that just, you know, absolutely changed my life. During his two-week stay, Nathan learned about the Christian God and the Christian tradition. And he was really fascinated by it. One, because it had such ancient roots and it was still thriving, you know, all these years later. But two, because it allowed for things like mercy and forgiveness for its followers, that Nathan could not get things right sometimes and still be accepted. This tradition became something I... I just fell in love with. And through that tradition, you know, I learned to fall in love with God. So Nathan would have loved to just stay at the monastery indefinitely, but he was going off to college. So Nathan left the monastery, went off to school. He found a church, continued to go, continued to learn about Christianity. And the next year, he was baptized. Nathan had found what he believed and who he believed. It was a God-man named Jesus. And Nathan was really zealous about his newfound faith. But attending a secular college, he started sticking out like a sore thumb. It kind of felt like a topic nobody wanted to talk about, but yet that I would kind of bring into spaces, um, you know, for one reason or another, it, it was an obsession of mine. Uh, and and I would bring it where where I went. Because he was so excited to talk about his faith, friends and classmates started asking Nathan about what he believed. And some people found his beliefs to be kind of strange, especially when Nathan said that he couldn't participate in certain things like partying and drinking and drugs. There would be moments, as you know, many Christians might experience in a non-Christian world where one has to say no to things. When one says, no, I'm not gonna go there with you. You know, that's that's against my beliefs. And that, of course, would raise the question, you know, wait, what are those beliefs? Why do you hold them? You know, are you crazy? Uh, and so I was very alone in, in my experience and I'm constantly feeling on the defensive and having to explain myself to others and not really knowing how to do that. Yeah, like, I feel for the guy, you know, he's gone off to college, it's his first time kind of out as an adult on his own, and now he's got this, like, new set of beliefs that he's really excited about, but everybody else thinks he's a little off his rocker, you know, yeah. like, it's, like, not the right chemistry to be super popular on campus. Yeah, and of course, you know, since he's a pretty young believer at this point, all this constant questioning that he's getting starts making him think, like, gosh, have I believed the right thing? You know, did I make the right decision becoming a Christian? Are my beliefs strange and nonsensical? I was constantly questioning, you know, was I was this really where I was called? It was sleep-losing anxiety constantly. I mean, it was a very, very challenging period because, you know, it just, it just raised so many more questions than it answered. You know, as Augustine said, I'd become a question to myself. Everything felt like it was, it was up for grabs and nothing really felt settled in so many respects. So Nathan wondered, you know, is there a way he could be sure that he had believed the right thing? You know, how could he have confidence in his newfound faith? And how could he show that confidence to those around him who were constantly questioning him? That word proof kind of 
landed in my head. So Nathan starts to think about proof. Like maybe that's what he needs. Maybe he just needs proof. Undeniable evidence that the God of the Bible that he now believes in is real. Like if I could just find this one thing that everyone looks at and goes, I cannot deny this truth. Yeah, that'll settle it for me. Yeah. Yep. Okay, if I could just prove it, (laughs) if I had a really good argument, maybe that would settle me. Maybe I would stop losing sleep. Maybe I would stop worrying about whether this, you know, great commitment I had made was the worst mistake of my life. So Nathan began a quest to prove the existence of God. He became a journalist of sorts, seeking out and talking with people on all sides, atheists, agnostics, evangelicals. He also watched countless YouTube hours of popular debaters at the time. So folks like new atheist Richard Dawkins. The whole enterprise of evolutionary biology is to explain how you get prodigious complexity and design from virtually nothing. And folks like evangelical apologist William Lane Craig. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. Nathan spent years gathering evidence and arguments from all corners of philosophical and theological thought, looking to see if there is indeed undeniable proof that God is real. And in all his exploration, the thing that intrigued him the most was actually historical writings, proofs of God from eras long past. So this would be things like Thomas Aquinas's five proofs that we talked about at the top of the episode. Okay. yeah, yeah particularly one that was important for me was was from a medieval monk turned bishop named Anselm of Canterbury. It's a very famous argument. Basic gist is that the very idea of God somehow actually proves that God must exist. Hold on. How does that work? Okay, yeah. I could be like, fairies must exist, and therefore I'm saying fairies exist? Like, right. that doesn't seem right. Yeah, okay. So Anselm's argument was this, that... Humans throughout the centuries have defined God as an unmatched supreme being. And if that is the definition of God, then he must exist because a God who actually exists would be greater than a made-up God who does not exist. So a real God, by definition, is more supreme than an imaginary God. Okay, so hold on. A real God God is by definition more supreme than an imaginary God. Right. So if we're making God up, then he must actually be real, because if God is a supreme being, he would be greater than a made up God. Okay, I'll have to think on that one. Yeah. It can sound like a bit of a hazy argument for us today and not make a lot of sense. Right. But actually, in the heyday of Greek philosophy, that argument carried a lot of weight. But here's what's interesting is that the argument itself was not what was captivating for Nathan. When I actually read the text of his of his argument, I realized, wow, this it was full of this kind of love language for God. And it made me realize, oh, this is not just an abstract argument. This is a love letter. And I don't think the argument can be understood apart from that love letter. That 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 emotional quality of the experience is is also part of what appears to be just a rational thing. 
So Nathan saw basically that there was more behind Anselm's proof than simple reasoning, that there was love for God and a desire for that God to be known, that there was reason, but there was also emotion involved. I'm thinking of even like the first story that we did as well as this one. They're both kind of touching on this thing. There's an ancient understanding of how do we come to believe and know something and that there are actually three components to it. The first one is a lot of what Nathan is exploring initially, which is like the intellect. It's like, can I intellectually in my thoughts believe something? Like, does it is it rational? The second piece is, can in any way, does it align with my experiences? And then the third way, is can I make sense of this in terms of like my desire, my affections, my longings? So there's gotta be some sort of emotional resonance, like we're not computers. And so proving something will have the most weight when it's hitting all three of those areas. And where does that come from? Yeah, it comes from just ancient Greek philosophy. So intellect, experience, and desire. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that was one historical text that really impacted Nathan. And another one was from a German philosopher named Hegel. And Hegel had this strange book on the the proofs of God. And and he does a really unusual thing there, is rather than try to land on a proof that, that settles the question once and for all, which is kind of what a lot of other people seem to do, Hegel saw the different arguments that people developed over time as actually being connected to each other and revealing in different sequential moments different aspects of God. Wait, so wait, what is he saying there? Okay, so basically he's saying that all these proofs over the course of history are like looking at different angles of a diamond, that they're all pointing to different aspects of the same thing and need to be viewed as a whole in order to get a more complete picture so that one proof on its own is not enough to contain God. Okay, so basically there's not going to be this one airtight thing. It's like you have to look at it as like a whole. Yes. That to me made me realize, oh, okay, this is a story to tell. This is not just a quest for the perfect precise argument. This is actually, you know, this is a progression. This is a a narrative. This is a journey. Yeah, and that was definitely true for Nathan. It was a journey. You know, his exploration to find the right proof took him 10 years. And he actually compiled this whole journey into a book called God and Proof, where he details everything he discovered from all the philosophers and the theologians and the YouTubers that he learned from. So what was his conclusion? I mean, 10 years of work, like what did this all lead to? Did he did he find the proof that he was looking for? Okay, so Nathan did ultimately come to a conclusion, but it didn't come from where he expected You know, what settled the question for me personally really was not proof. Um, Hate to break it to you, um, spoiler, uh, but, but it wasn't a particular rational argument that enabled me to come into myself as a, as a Christian. Um, It it was really community. It was, it was finding, you know, fellow Christians who, you know, where the spirit was, was very present. So when he talks about the spirit being present, what he's referring to is the verse in Matthew 18 where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Yeah. So it was being around other Christians, you know, doing the work of living out the Christian faith, being involved in things like caring for the poor, doing life with other believers. 
That is what finally settled the argument for him, seeing God lived out through his people. You know, that's what Jesus taught us to do. You know, he, he didn't start his ministry by pronouncing a, you know, a rational argument from the, from the hilltop. He, he started by gathering friends. You know, seeing people really live their, their faith together um, through their relationships with each other, you know, suddenly, not suddenly, but through that community, you know, the question of God no longer felt, you know, does God exist? No longer felt like a question to me. It just felt so true, clear, and, and obvious um, that that relationship and love are somehow at the root of, of, of everything that we experience. It's really fascinating. There's this movement, and we saw it in both stories, in which people start off with a certain certain question, does God exist? But there's this moment where they shift from the, like, can I prove this as a cold, hard fact over and into something that's just more transcendent, something that's like, it's more about meaning and purpose and beauty. Like, there's a sense in which they reach the end of measurement. You either have to go, nope, I'm not taking a dive, or I am. In both these stories, it's like they reach this place where they're like, what is beyond these facts is so much more beautiful and compelling and moving than what's behind me. I'm taking the dive. Yeah. Yeah, I think in a way it kind of goes back to what Thomas Aquinas was trying to do in his five proofs is he was trying to merge this like sect of logic, reason, science, and the sect of mystery and transcendence and supernatural and saying like life is not about either or life is about both and yeah so today nathan is a media studies professor at the university of colorado in boulder and he continues to be a faithful christian and questions about whether or not he's believed in the right thing they no longer worry him and even though it wasn't rational proofs that ultimately answered the question for Nathan, he wouldn't say that proofs have no place. Instead, he sees them as ways to help us contemplate the complexity of God and to learn more about him. That so-called ontological argument of Anselm that I described earlier, that idea that the very possibility of God, the very idea of God, if you contemplate it deeply enough, will disclose the reality of God's existence. That that kind of argument has in the years since been a reminder to me, am I taking the time to contemplate God with that kind of depth and commitment that Anselm did? Or, you know, arguments from the the order and beauty or design of nature, you know, am I allowing myself to see the natural world as itself revealing of God's love in the way that St. Francis did? Each has their little gift. Each has their their reminder. Um, their insistence, you know, that, that can help guide us in our ongoing relationships with God, even if we're not quaking in our boots about whether God exists or not. And it also really explains at another level, you know, this current movement where you just, I mean, in droves, people are leaving the Christian faith. And it is, in so many ways, it's because our beauty has been so deformed as the church lately, like the way that we have expressed it, like we've lacked grace, we've lacked community, we've lacked authenticity, we've lacked, you know, walking with Jesus faithfully, 
And so people are like, well, I'm gonna go towards the beauty and they're not seeing the beauty in the church. So they're going to find the beauty elsewhere. Mm. I think the thing that I find encouraging is that folks like Francis and Nathan, they're in good company. You know, the Christian faith has always made room for skepticism. You know, you think about Thomas, one of Jesus's own disciples. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, the other disciples told Thomas about it. And Thomas was like, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Yeah. And Thomas wanted proof. He wanted logical, physical proof. Yeah, and then how do we see Jesus respond? Like he shows up when Thomas is around and he tells him, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So like Jesus is not offended by our doubts or our desire for proof. He answers us, but he does also tell Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So God is able to give us physical proof, but he also sometimes just gives us mystery. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to still believe him in the midst of both? If you've benefited at all, From this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our interviewee for this episode, Nathan Schneider. Also, special thanks to the Language of God podcast for Francis Collins Audio. You can find a link to his full interview in the show notes. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Rachel Zabo, who is also our media director and producer, and who the other day started talking back to me, and I warned her I would enforce a strict dress code, including polo shirts and slacks. It was sleep-losing anxiety constantly. Anna Tran is our audio engineer. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Pottington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, you'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Likewise.